dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing the audio of an online webinar I attended in April for Oregon Wine Month. There will be more of these episodes to follow, so stay tuned. I have fallen in love with Oregon wines. So many wineries have captured the beautiful expressions of the varieties they grow. But today's conversation is about one that I am not too familiar with, sparkling wines in Oregon. I believe that I have only had one or two, so this was an exciting topic. You can watch the video on Oregon Wine Board's YouTube channel. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Did you know you can do it right now while you're listening? New ratings and reviews are how the algorithms decide which podcasts they recommend to others. And if you love the podcast, other wine lovers will too. So don't forget to add your email address on the website to keep up with all things exploring the wine glass. Lancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, Somme service, champagne and Cotteron specialist, and a WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. We're excited to have everybody joining us and appreciate your time. Uh, My name is David DeWitt. I run trade relations for the Oregon Wine Board. I'm joined today by Bree Stock, our Director of Education. This is, like I said, a, a series of four webinars that we'll be hosting leading up to Oregon Wine Month, which we celebrate every May. Um, Today's topic is sparkling wine, um, which is pretty exciting. Oregon's really making big strides when it comes to sparkling wine. Obviously, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay thrive here, so we're we're well suited to make great products. Um, Bree, please take it away. Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone, for being here today. Uh, Excited to talk about a new subject, sparkling Oregon wine, uh, which is having huge growth. So, uh, which makes a lot of sense given that Oregon is generally a, you know, strong Pinot Noir producer, but also coming on very strong with Chardonnay as well, and also other styles of sparkling from other grape varieties as well. Um, The rise of sparkling is uh, certainly on trend um, with a lot of rosé, Blanc de Blanc, uh, Blanc de Noir, and more complex styles of sparkling really starting to take off here in the U.S. as well. Uh, and from a pretty small region, um, which is Oregon, we are only um, about 4% of the sparkling production uh, in the U.S. at the moment. Okay, so for those of you who have not been to Oregon, here is a map of our state. We are wedged in between Washington and California. So we're sitting north of California and just south of Washington. We are a incredibly temperate uh, and maritime climate uh, in the in the 
uh, along the western edge of the um, state. So that's the majority of where most of the wine growing is happening in Oregon is really wedged between those coastal um, coast range and Siskiyou mountains, um, which help buffer um, the cool Pacific Ocean winds and big ocean storms that we do get here um, and have been present here for about the last four months. Um, really, really coming in, giving us a lot of cold, um, wet weather, which really helps to replenish um, our soils and helps us to dry farm as well. Much of Oregon is dry farmed, um, not requiring irrigation really until you start getting into um, the eastern parts of the state and the southern parts of the state, um, where the soils do get a little more alluvial and the elevations higher and further from the coast and um, less impacted by those Pacific Ocean um, coast cool coastal currents as well. Uh, Oregon now has 22 AVAs, so 22 American viticultural areas. That's been exciting developments as Oregon continues to really refine and define its growing areas. You know, the state's um, wine production is just around uh, 60 years old at the moment. So we're really starting to see those second and third generations really start to um, really define and be able to communicate communicate clearly the different um, attributes of each AVA, whether it be soils, elevation, um, the specific characteristics of the climate there, and really identifying which wine styles, um, grape varieties uh, are really performing within the nested AVAs. Um, the largest growing region for Oregon is the Willamette Valley in the north. You can see that uh, Willamette Valley has 10 uh, nested AVAs within it. Most of them are within the northwestern part of the AVA. Uh, and you'll see as we go into here, um, the Willamette Valley is a three and a half million acre AVA. So it's quite a large span um, of the Willamette Valley watershed based around the Willamette Valley River, um, three and a half million acres. It you know takes you a good three hours to get from north to south, um, from Portland down to Eugene, um, across that I-5 corridor, and even longer if you're traversing through the many hills valleys um, of the AVAs on the western side of the state where the major uh, where the on the western side of the AVA where the majority of those um, really well-defined um, and premium AVAs are located. Um, it's exciting to see that even within the larger AVAs like Shehalem Mountains, we're further defining the pieces of land within those larger AVAs um, to, for really distinctive uh, wine growing purposes. So uh, Ribbon Ridge there obviously being a nice small um, AVA with um, alluvial soils. Um, uh, what have we got a question here? Aside from CG... Uh, um, there's only the four AVAs. So David, yeah, that's a good question. Um, what shared AVAs does um, Oregon share with other states? Um, there's really just, if I just go back to the slide beforehand. So the shared AVAs for Oregon are the um, Columbia River Gorge, the Columbia Valley, um, and Walla Walla here. So these three along the Columbia River 
And then the fourth is the Snake River Valley, which we share with Idaho. So um, all of these are growing in vineyard um, production. Uh, and more and more uh, producers are starting to seek out uh, grapes from these AVAs and not just within um, this area, but a lot from the Willamette Valley are now seeking out um, fruit from Walla Walla or the Rocks District of Milton Freewater or Columbia, um, Columbia Gorge AVA or even uh, the Snake River Valley AVA as well. Um, so really, you know, starting to explore the state a little more as well. Uh, so back to the Willamette Valley. Um, within the Willamette Valley, there are really three main dominant soil types. So you have the ancient marine sedimentary soils that were pushed um, to the surface when the um, tectonic plates collided and really brought Oregon out of the ocean millions of years ago. And then uh, on top of those, you have the volcanic basalt soils, which formed um, as part of the Cascades uh, and all of the other um, uh, volcanoes and mountains really started um, um, really forming and spewing out a lot of um, really heavy lava and uh, volcanic basalt. And then the low soils are really, are really, um, um, segmented on the northern part of the Willamette Valley, um, which is these low soils are coming down the Columbia River from Washington. Um, and these are the really the wind blown uh, basalt volcanics, um, very fine, very um, light powdery soils. And it's really what's found in much of Washington's growing regions as well. Um, as you can see, the uh, Willamette Valley ABA is um, quite large with, um, oh, we do have one missing on here actually, um, <laughs> what um, is quite large with um, the majority of the premium AVAs being in the Northwest. And so these are really actually where the valley um, is most um, hilled and most forested as well. So we start to get up off of the valley floor um, at, a, at where the AVAs start. So that's around 200 feet elevation and they tend to go up to a thousand feet in elevation. Um, we are even pushing above that in some AVAs uh, and also as we move further into the coast range, seeking some cooler weather um, and more rainfall for dry grown vineyards. Um, especially suited to sparkling production is when we do go into those cool sites. So it's, you know, one, one foot hedging for the future um, in terms of uh, where Pinot Noir can grow, being that it is a fairly thin-skinned grape variety and doesn't like a lot of heat. Um, as the summers in Oregon get warmer and drier, uh, folks are now starting to find um, vineyards that are in cooler um, environments as well. So moving higher, uh, higher into elevations uh, around the 8 to 1100 feet elevation um, and really starting to benefit from those um, cooler winds um, at the higher elevations and the larger diurnal shifts that start to happen at those high elevations as well. Um, Pinot Noir is 59% 
of Oregon's great plantings. Um, most of it is found in the Willamette Valley and it's still increasing in plantings. So the Willamette Valley has almost 90% um, percent Pinot Noir in terms of its production within the Willamette Valley. And then also in Southern Oregon, um, the Umpqua Valley and the Rogue Valleys, Pinot Noir is the dominant grape variety there as well. Uh, so it makes sense that Oregon is really starting to produce a lot more um, sparkling wines made from Pinot Noir um, and also Chardonnay. So as Chardonnay is growing in popularity, um, as we get better clones, uh, we find more suitable sites. Uh, and as the style of Chardonnay that is appreciated across um, the well, the US and the world really has uh, moved towards a leaner, crisper, uh, more minerally and salty style. Um, the Chardonnay in Oregon has really started to um, find favor again in the fa in fans um, of consumers and of critics as well. And these are really starting to spread um, a lot more plantings. So um, we have around 7% um, of Oregon's grapes are planted to Chardonnay. So that doesn't seem like a lot, but um, we don't have, you know, huge uh, masses of other grape varieties either. So 7% is quite large. Uh, for instance, there's around 12% uh, Pinot Gris, around 2% of Riesling, um, and, you know, there are a host of other grape varieties. There's more than 80 grape varieties planted around the state of Oregon, um, but Pinot Noir is certainly um, the focus for red varieties, and uh, Chardonnay is fast becoming a focus um, in whites, especially in the Willamette. A little bit of history for sparkling wine in Oregon. Um, it may seem like a bit of a surprise that we haven't really touched on too much sparkling wine production um, in any of these seminars in the past, considering that uh, Roland Souls, who founded Argyle uh, Winery along with Brian Croser in 1987, um, was really the first to start producing um, really quite a substantial amount of sparkling wine in Oregon. Um, he really was dedicated to um, making premium sparkling wine and they're really known um, Argyle for their extended tirage. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit as we move into the styles of, of wine that we have, of sparkling wine that we have here. So Roland um, came, came from Texas, but he'd worked around the world um, working in cool climate growing regions. And really in 1987, you know, viticulture um, and the major plantings that were starting to happen in the Willamette Valley were still quite young. Um, and the climate was still quite um, very moderate at that point. And some of the higher elevation sites um, that Roland had access to were not always ripening um, to the level that he would have liked to make red wines from. And so it seemed like a natural uh, progression for him to invest in making sparkling wines. And he really did um, with gusto. <laughs> so Argyle is now one of the largest producers of um, 
of sparkling wine uh, in Oregon and continues to uh, grow and continues to be renowned um, around the US for um, the, the Blanc de Blanc styles and for their extended aged releases. So spending 10 years on their lees in bottle to give really developed um, creamy mouth feels. There's one question in here. Uh, of the 80-ish varietals grown in the state, how much of that is Vitus vinifera? Um, most of it is, is Vitus vinifera brook. Um, there's very few hybrid varieties um, here in the state. We do find some in uh, a couple of vineyards um, in the Willamette Valley uh, and some up in central Oregon, actually. Um, but other than that, the majority of the 80 varieties that we're really um, talking about are um, our vitus vinifera vines. Um, so just as um, more and more people um, have access to, you know, foundation plant services and all of the um, vine varieties that they're bringing in, and as some of the nursery companies really work to um, partner with some of the universities um, in France and Spain, um, they're really bringing in some very high quality clonal material. And um, that's what people are, you know, tracking down and um, doing some research and finding what grows where in what site. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, terroir comparisons to Northwestern Spain, um, given our climate and our proximity to the cold ocean. So there's really, um, just a lot of uh, imaginative winemakers, I'm sure, um, as you can imagine, and wine growers who are investing in um, seeing what other varieties can do here as well. So um, while Pinot Noir and Chardonnay continue to be the most planted, um, continuing on mass, um, big vineyard scales, there's many um, creative growers who are really playing around with a few um, other varieties and planting you know, acre blocks of, of new varieties around the place. Um, especially down in Southern Oregon as well. There's a real um, a huge movement for um, introducing new varieties in Southern Oregon as well. So back to Roland and his adventures in um, moving to Oregon to make wine and discovering that a lot of his blocks, um, some at a thousand feet elevation, uh, like the Knudsen Vineyard in the Dundee Hills that was planted in 1972, um, that that's really a very high elevation, cool site and um, really makes some beautiful citrusy, um, really bright fruit flavored um, sparkling wines from that site. So the, the instance um, of having some of these cooler vineyard sites um, in the Eola Amity Hills that is really impacted by the Pacific Ocean, when those ocean um, storms start to come in, in mid-September, late September and mid-October, sometimes the Pinot Noir grapes um, are not quite at the level that um, some would like to make the um, best peanut red table wine, Pinot Noirs. And so it's a very natural um, progression into making a Blanc de Noir or a, um, or a blended Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. 
There's very little Pinot Meunier planted in the Willamette Valley, um, although it is increasing. Um, Argyle do have some, only a small amount. Um, Soder has planted a small amount and so has Flaneur. Uh, so there's a few producers that are really trying to focus on developing their sparkling production um, and really selecting the best clonal material and seeking out the highest elevation and coolest sites, some even north facing sites, um, to focus their, their um, sparkling traditional method wine production on. Um, in 1997, uh, Soda Brut Rosé was born, or Soda Pop, as it's fondly called. Um, Portland native Tony Soda, um, who had etude in uh, Napa Valley and Carneros, came back to um, the Willamette Valley and purchased a couple of vineyard sites, one that had a high amount of Chardonnay um, and Pinot Noir, that was a cooler site. Uh, and he um, and his wife decided that they um, would make a uh, Chardonnay uh, dominant uh, Brut Rosé from uh, this site. And this is really um, what Tony started, you know, started there, the soda foray into sparkling wine. Um, Tony uh, loved having the extended hang time that you would get here in the Pacific Northwest um, from those um, cooler, more moderate temperatures that would allow more flavor development to happen in his sparkling wines. Um, and so he really enjoyed playing around and refining um, that technique for um, developing true Pinot Noir and true Chardonnay character in their sparkling wines um, while still retaining the natural fresh acidity um, that the cool climates um, of this growing season gives you. Irie might have been the first to plant Pinot Meunier. Um, they still make a single varietal Pinot Meunier, but I don't believe they make a sparkling uh, unless it's a pet nut. Um, <clears throat> 1999 uh, was the next um, foray into um, some sparkling wine development here in the Willamette Valley with Elk Cove, uh, making their first Blanc de Noir. Um, again, a cooler vintage and uh, some young vines. Um, Elk Cove really played around with um, trying to perfect um, the Blanc de Noir, um, although they only released, they 20, the 1999 was their first and only release again until 2011 when they released their Pinot Noir Rosé, uh, and then they've re released some ever since. The vintages from 2010, 2011, uh, 2012, there was a real boom in uh, traditional method sparkling wine production in um, the Willamette Valley and in Oregon, um, mostly because of the coolness of these three vintages. They were all quite late um, and it was um, a real chance for people to hang the fruit, get some really great hang time, um, develop the flavors, but the uh, natural bright, um, really aggressive acidity of those very late seasons was just an ideal opportunity for these winemakers to really feel like they could make a premium sparkling wine. Um, the investment into sparkling wine is uh, not, <laughs> not um, 
to be done lightly. It is very expensive, um, you know, in comparison to making a regular table wine. Um, and so when, um, you know, people go into it, they have to really consider um, how are they going to be moving forward with this? Will it be just a single vintage release or are they really going to invest in it? Um, Andrew Davis of Radiant Sparkling Wine, who gave me a lot of my information um, for this seminar as well, um, really saw that there was a genuine uh, interest in growing the sparkling wine category in the Willamette Valley and in Oregon uh, at large. And Andrew was a winemaker who originally was at Argyle, um, but really felt this um, need um, and desire to start his own um, small facility uh, in McMinnville to serve the needs of small Oregon producers who couldn't necessarily afford um, to purchase all of the additional equipment that sparkling wine requires of you. In 2014, really a huge growth. So his he started with just around a dozen clients um, and within uh, just one decade, really less than a decade, he has grown um, to having 47 um, client partners um, for his sparkling um, wine facility. Uh, he's pretty much at capacity and um, all of the sparkling wine producers within his facility continue to expand. Bend. So there's definitely a lot of success that he's having with sparkling wine um, development in the Willamette Valley and really um, helping the industry to understand um, the different styles that can be made, the different tirage methods, um, the different, um, all, of, all of the great um, in, immense expense that sparkling wine takes uh, and the different approaches in terms of the um, the fineness of the winemaking that needs to happen for these sparkling wines to be really pure um, and really high quality like the rest of the wines that come out of the Willamette Valley. Um, so he's been a great asset um, to building this um, this product in, in Oregon. Uh, he makes wines or helps those make wine from the Columbia Gorge all the way down to the Rogue Valley. Um, Anna Lammer is one of his clients um, and most are still using Pinot Noir um, or Chardonnay for their um, traditional method sparkling wine production. Dosage trials are really important um, and in um, in the last several Oregon symposiums, there's been a real focus on the industry's um, attention to understanding different sparkling wine methods. Um, so also in 2012 um, and to 2014, there was another sparkling boom happening um, at a much smaller level and with mostly the more small uh, producers and the natural uh, focused producers um, and uh, biodynamic and organic focused producers in the state who don't like to um, intervene too much in the um, winemaking process. So as uh, Petillant Naturel evolution uh, was also happening um, in the early um, teens of the 2000s um, with 
uh, pet nut being the single fermentation in bottle. Um, it really is a raw product um, that's very full and complex, um, but doesn't have any of the refinement or aging um, that happens under the traditional method style. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. So that was in the early teens. And then of course, um, the canned Oregon um, uh, tradition took off. And so Underwood were one of the first to um, really focus on canning wines. Uh, and the bubbles came with that. So carbonated or tank method um, uh, fermentations under pressure were uh, bottled into cans um, and that's really taken off. And uh, Nielsen data, I think in 2018, reported a 50% rise in Oregon sparkling wine sales. And so much of that can be attributed to the sparkling wine cans, as well as a national um, understanding and interest in what um, the likes of Argyle um, and other producers were doing at the time. And me um, with Thomas Hausman sitting down there inside his press uh, on the right hand side of your screen being another um, uh, huge proponent for um, premium quality sparkling wine and really working with um, Pinot Meunier um, and Pinot Noir, Blanc de Noirs and Rosés um, to really uh, focus on creating high quality premium styled um, rosé, traditional method sparkling. It was also Anami um, that started the first Bubbles Fest in, um, in 2016 as well. And that's a two day event that then has um, an additional technical tasting um, for winemakers. So really sharing that collegiate um, knowledge sharing that the Willamette Valley is really so well known for and Oregon is so well known for for and helping to really bring forward the sparkling movement and the quality of the sparkling movement um, together as a united front here in the Willamette Valley. And now a word from our sponsor. Josina Wines loves to give back. There are so many fur babies that deserve to find their forever home. We would love to be able to help as many as possible. If you are part of a nonprofit organization or know of a nonprofit organization that would like to hold a fundraiser, please contact us at contact at dracinawines.com or visit our website, dracinawines.com, to fill out the form. How does the fundraiser work? It is super simple and costs your group absolutely nothing. Together, we will choose a month that your group will be sponsored. During the month, you promote the fundraiser just like any other event you'd hold. At the end of the month, we will donate 20% of the sales to your organization. The donations will be made in the name of each individual who purchased the wine so that you know exactly who helped the animals. Our goal is to raise as much funds as we possibly can and to help as many animals as possible. So please help us help as many fur babies as we possibly can. Uh, in 2018, we also had the first sparkling symposium with um, Peter Leem as keynote, who wrote that wonderful champagne um, tome. <laughs> and then um, again, Willamette Valley's Chemeketa College also introduced into their enology program a um, deep dive into sparkling wine uh, with a really deep curriculum um, and also investment with Andrew Davis into um, uh, sparkling wine um, machines as well. 
Um, uh, so there's four main methods really of um, making sparkling wine in Oregon that you'll see, and they will vary in price. So traditional method sparkling where the grapes are uh, intentionally farmed for sparkling production, um, where in Oregon, we still generally have lower yields for our sparkling wines, whereas in Champagne, they're often getting, um, you know, up to six tons an acre for their for their um, sparkling production. In Oregon, it's still um, pretty standard to have um, around three tons uh, for sparkling production. So traditional method, uh, you make wine intentionally for sparkling, um, ferment it to dryness so it'll be a low alcohol wine um, that you then add um, sugar and yeast to in the bottle when you bottle so that you're increasing the alcohol level um, and having the yeast that you're adding go to work on the sugars that you're adding to the bottle as well um, and then it spends the most important part time on lees uh, entourage so really um, having that yeast degradation, the amino acids in the yeast really breaking down and creating creamy, nutty, savory umami characters in the sparkling wine. And generally those flavors don't start to develop until at least 12 months of autolytic time um, on, on the yeast lees. Uh, and so many producers here um, will do extended uh, tirage, not as much as 10 years as Argyle does for their um, prestige cuvee, uh, but generally between 15 months and three years. So really, generally following those um, standard traditional champagne um, timeframes for a vintage uh, sparkling traditional method wine. So after tirage, um, that's when they decide if a dosage is required. Many of um, the Willamette Valley's um, wines are very uh, low dosage or zero dosage. Um, and again, because of the low yields of the fruit, there's quite a lot of flavor to the grapes um, and really not wanting to mask anything um, with adding additional sugar to the, to the, um, to the cuvee, uh, unless it really does enhance um, the character, the high quality character. Uh, and then tank method. Um, so this is for generally larger production sparkling wines. Um, tank method, again, you're, um, from, you're pressing the juice, um, fermenting it in tank with yeast, um, and um, but really um, bottling it under pressure. So making sure that it's in a, um, a tank that has uh, a pressure valve that's going to keep in all of that CO2, as we know um, from general winemaking, that um, the yeast and sugar create heat and create CO2. Um, and generally we would have release valves on our tank that would um, allow that CO2 to expand and escape. Um, but with tank method, we're going to keep those um, valves closed or uh, shut off and really, or use specialized tanks um, before we filter, add a dosage, and then bottle the sparkling wine. 
Um, Charmat or tank method are often used for aromatic varieties. So you'll often find Riesling or Muscat, sometimes Pinot Gris, Gewurztraminer, um, made in the tank method uh, format. And sometimes they will also have residual sugar as well. So either arresting the fermentation and filtering out the yeast um, to leave a lower alcohol, slightly sweeter, fruitier um, style of sparkling or they'll have a um, dosage added before bottling as well. And then ancestral method or pétillant naturel or petnat um, is made as in general the same way as you would make um, a still wine. However, you monitor the bricks um, uh, level as the alcohol is increasing um, just before uh, you have less than five grams of sugar left, um, what you want to do is then cool the um, wine down, chill it down, uh, and um, not you can filter it, but then you're removing the yeast. Um, what you really want to do is uh, rack it a couple of times for clarity, and then take those yeast and the um, residual sugar that's still left in the wine, that five grams, and bottle it um, at that point. Those yeast are going to continue to work on those um, remaining sugars in the bottle, and this will create a sparkling wine. It won't be of the same um, intensity uh, and same pressure as a traditional method sparkling wine that are usually around six or seven um, atmospheres it'll generally be around three or four. So a lot more of a gentle um, foam in your mouth. And then the final method is carbonation. Um, so really just inserting, pumping air into the wine to create um, uh, carbonation. So you can make your traditional rosé, um, you can pick it for sparkling production, make a traditional rosé, ferment it to dryness or blanc de blanc, uh, or Blanc de Noir style, ferment it to dryness. Uh, and then at the bottling line, you can inject carbon, um, sorry, um, CO2, carbon dioxide into the bottle. Uh, and that is your carbonated wine. So they're the main four methods. And of course, all of these methods um, are differing levels of time consumption. Um, and as you can imagine, as it takes longer to make traditional method sparkling, there's a lot more uh, investment of time and money, though wines tend to be higher priced. So um, sparkling um, ancestral method wines will tend to be around the same price as your more premium table wines. Um, and then within the sparkling wine styles, then um, within the sparkling wine methods, then you have your traditional sparkling wine styles. So the most common in, um, in Oregon is really the rosé or the non-vintage style um, with Blanc de Blanc and Blanc de Noir becoming increasingly popular. So the non-vintage um, blend of different grapes and uh, so primarily Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. Um, although, as I mentioned earlier, Pinot Meunier is um, not really um, uh, of prominence here in the Valley. Um, the, the blend of grapes um, generally coming from different years 
This is a style that's starting to evolve here, but primarily uh, Willamette Valley does a lot of vintage um, traditional method sparkling. So really highlighting and taking advantage of the cooler um, vintages um, and increasing production in those cooler vintages. Um, and then also having that ability to um, where the grapes are ripening at the end of the season and you're starting to get flavor development, you're able to have much more distinctive vintage character profiles in your sparkling wines. So uh, one of the reasons that Oregon is really starting to become um, such a haven for um, great sparkling wine producers um, and great sparkling wine styles is that um, ripening at the end of the season, very high quality farming practices and the ability to get a lot of um, varietal character and depth of character within um, the high crisp natural acidity that's required um, of a sparkling wine. Uh, Blanc de Blanc is really on the rise with the increase increased uh, plantings of Chardonnay as well. Um, and Blanc de Noir is probably the highest production of, of that style as well. So Pinot Noir being so prevalent, it makes a lot of sense to be making a Blanc de Noir style that has all of the um, savory um, and red fruited exuberance that um, Pinot Noir tends to give you. Uh, Rosés are also popular, um, but these are more so popular with the tank method and carbonation styles or pet nat styles um, of, of wine and um, not so much in the traditional method at the moment, but it is growing. The prestige cuvee style is the um, you know, highest um, of the premium category in that producer's range. And for an example of that would be Argyle's 10-year um, extended tourage. So this has really um, gained such great attention for the Willamette Valley and for um, what sparkling wine is capable of here. Um, it's a, such a dedication um, to lay down a wine for 10 years uh, in the cellar um, and then finally release it. It's such a great celebration and the wine is incredibly complex and incredibly long-lived. It has the finest bead of a sparkling uh, because of that really extended time on lees. It's got the um, really typical creamy mid palate um, and bright fruit that that um, Oregon sparklings are known for. Um, however, it's really developing into, um, you know, more of the nutty characters and um, and rounded fruit flavors that come with um, time aged, you know, wine in bottle. Um, and then there's a, an example of Little Barnett, their Blanc de Noir, which is made by um, Andrew Davis. This is, um, he's a partner in this company. And it's a company that's really um, focused entirely on sparkling wine production. So they've uh, made a real commitment to just focusing on sparkling wine um, and the belief that sparkling wine in uh, the Willamette Valley is, is excellent. Uh, so additional considerations for style within the traditional method. Um, so getting elegance through early picking to keep that natural bright acidity, um, keeping yields fairly low still to really retain um, the flavor development of the varieties. And this is going to, um, you know, really depend on the winemaker styles. There are some winemakers who um, want almost flavorless um, grapes 
for their sparkling production and they want all of the flavor development to come through time on lees um, so that extended um, tirage from you know 12 to 36 months uh, being the most common and then vintage um, conditions vintage character uh, also the other um, traits that winemakers are looking for being that vintage um, sparklings are what um, the Willamette Valley mostly creates at the moment in terms of their production sizes. Um, obviously the grape varieties that we grow here in the Willamette Valley and, and have high um, uh, production of are really suited to making premium quality uh, sparkling wine. Um, and then we can continue to expand the category um, and expand the growth of the category by moving into those higher cooler elevation sites um, that are becoming available uh, and also moving closer to the coast as well where the, um, the the acidity and the freshness remains very high. In um, southern Oregon they have naturally high elevations and there are some beautiful traditional method sparkling wine companies um, in southern Oregon, um, Irvine and Roberts being one of them who focus on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay at their high elevation site in the Rogue Valley um, that's on really well-drained sandstone soils um, and they get very um, very creamy, um, very intense um, citrus character from, from their high elevation site as well. Um, in the gorge, that uh, wind and again, high elevation from the, um, the mountains that are present in the gorge really allow for some aromatic um, cool climate styles as well. So again, Blanc de Noir being prominent in, in the gorge um, and Analemma makes probably the most famed um, sparkling in the gorge, um, but it was really, um, uh, the pines who who started um, making sparkling wine in the gorge as well um, around the same time that 2012 time when everyone else um, had that cool vintage as well and really started to focus on understanding what sparkling wine could be in in Oregon. So good question about um, aside from style are producers required to indicate dosage levels on the label. Um, they are not required because there is not generally a requirement. Um, however, most um, for um, uh, national um, US sparkling wine. However, most do stick to the traditional um, brute, extra brute, zero dosage um, styles. So brute would be anything from zero to 14 grams of residual sugar um, and extra brute, half of that again. So um, really sticking to the traditional champagne um, styles there. Um, and then David has a question, given the preference by consumers and possibly bitness for it, to what extent, if any, has Chardonnay supplanted Pinot Gris in statewide plantings as producers focus upon um, and sales of your bubblies and still Chard have increased? Yes, that's a great question, David. Um, we're still, um, I think we will really start to see the actual numbers in the growth of Chardonnay. Um, because there has been an immense amount of plantings of Chardonnay in the last few years, um, but they've only just started coming into production. And the way that our um, data collection works is that we um, 
report off of um, collected tonnage. So tonnage that is turned into wine. So I would expect that within the next 12 to 36 months that we're going to see Chardonnay overtake Pinot Gris as the, um, I guess, whitish style of wine, given that Pinot Gris is a pink-skinned grape. Um, it, to my knowledge, um, there hasn't been too many plantings of Pinot Gris, if any, in the Willamette Valley in the last five years, maybe even 10 years. Um, but there is still a lot of Pinot Gris being planted uh, in the Umpqua Valley, for instance, um, and also some in the Rogue as well. But I do think that Chardonnay is on, on the cusp of uh, taking over Pinot Gris as, as Oregon's uh, white grape variety, which um, is maybe a little sad, um, but also exciting because I love Chardonnay as well. <laughs> um, so I'm happy to see all of the great new Chardonnays being created. And then considerations for style of pet nut. Uh, so as you can see, pet nuts are generally going to be a little cloudy. They're not fined and filtered. Um, they're definitely more raw and rustic uh, and youthful um, than uh, most traditional method sparkling wines are going to be. And that's part of their fun. It's like, um, I think, I think it was Brienne Day who said it's, you know, the difference between going to the symphony and going to a rock concert um, is the difference between sparkling, you know, traditional method sparkling wine and pet nat. And I love that, um, that analogy, because it's just so true. You um, just have this mouthful of wild, uh, you know, frothy fruit in your mouth uh, with pet nat. And it's such a fun style to make, and it can be made from uh, pretty much any, um pretty much any um grape variety in the state as well so everything from dolcetto to vermentino to zinfandel to zabibo um cabernet franc gamay pinot noir of course um can can really be um you know captured in this vibrant um unfiltered raw wine style uh, and i think you know it's really becoming pretty um fashionable within um, the younger community and um, the younger winemakers who maybe can't afford to, um, you know, put away so much um, wine and and money in um, holding a wine back for three to six years. You know, that's a lot of cash flow to hold on to. Um, so we're really seeing a lot of fun pet nuts coming out of um, younger winemakers or younger brands um, who want to have a bubbly because they're fun and delicious, um, but aren't able to, you know, do a um, held back salad release. Um, and that's perfect for um, the pet nut um, whole, uh, where you can just do small production, generally less than 100 cases. Um, it's generally done by hand. Um, so you need to have a small team on hand or have your friends help. Um, and then you get some really delicious wines coming out of that. So really capturing the last of that fermenting, fermentation and fermenting sugars, um, and traditionally not, um, not disgorged, uh, not topped up and having a little haze in the bottle. And then considerations for carbonation or tank method um, and canned wine styles. So the funny thing about Oregon is that, um, you know, people often think that canned wine is going to be lesser quality wine, but in Oregon, it's generally the same wine that they're going to be putting in bottles. So it's the canned wines are as um, 
as high quality as the um, as the bottled wines, and they don't really um, differentiate um, in terms of what they're you know the the quality level that they're putting in a can versus what they're putting in a bottle. Um, and they often do have both available. For instance, the A to Z bubbles is available in both the bottle, which it looks so pretty, um, but also available in the can as well. And carbonated wines are generally going to be um, pretty clean and crisp and the bubbles are going to be pretty aggressive and foamy in your palate. Um, they're definitely convenient for cans and pretty unpretentious. And they're often going to have um, a lot more fruit flavor to them. So a lot more bright, ripe fruit flavor, especially more than a traditional method sparkling. Um, and um, Pet nuts are going to have more of that yeasty, um, just finished fermentation flavor um, than a lot of the canned wine styles because these have been fermented to dryness um, and so have had time to rest as a dry wine before they're being put through the bottler um, and carbonated. So really suited to a lot of different grape varieties, canning and tank method um, production um, and can have just a lot of exuberant and fruit flavors, um, sometimes a little sweetness as well. Um, and yeah, beautiful, beautiful, um, really beautiful fruit flavors. Um, and again, yeah, unpretentious, easy to drink um, and great for taking on a hike. Uh, just a beautiful view of Temperance Hill Vineyard, uh, which is one of the vineyards that is obviously in very well known for a single vineyard estate, but also increasing their Chardonnay production as well. Um, and then here are some uh, sustainability um, uh, logos that you might see on some of the Oregon wines that are around. Um, so live certified, it stands for low input viticulture and enology. Um, most of um, it's the largest um, certification here in the in Oregon um, for for wines and you see it across many many wine brands um, and it's really a um, again that local really collegiate um, group getting together sharing information um, sharing best practices for um, sustainable farming practices really limiting inputs in the vineyard and in the winery um, and really trying to um, you know do better. Uh, then there's the organic and regenerative organic movement. So there's USDA, Oregon Tilth, and the ROC now, um, organic, organic regenerative certification. Um, Demeter biodynamic certification, mostly for vineyards um, and fruit here. Um, just a few wineries have the biodynamic certification for their sellers. Um, and then there's B Corp certified of which Oregon has the largest amount of um, B Corp certification wineries in the world, which mean that the employees of the company um, are really shareholders in the company as well. And so it's um, more of an equitable uh, certification as well as a sustainable certification. 
Uh, and then DRC, the Dry Roots Coalition, so um, those who forego um, irrigations in their vineyards. And then finally, Salmon Safe, uh, which is usually linked to live and is a program um, through the USDA um, in Oregon um, or ODA that um, really helps protect um, and limits the inputs in the vineyards so that we're not polluting the creeks and rivers that the runoff from all of our rainwater um, goes into the streams and impacts um, spawning salmon habitat. Uh, and then growing consumer demand for Oregon wine. Um, all of, I think you, we, we just saw through all of the work that um, Oregon winemakers do um, in their cellar and in their vineyard, um, you know, the average bottle price is higher for Oregon wine because of the fact that we don't have irrigation. Um, we don't, we can't pump up the volumes of the fruit. Um, we have hand harvesting um, and most of our wineries are um, quite small, about 70% are uh, under 5,000 cases. So small production, hand-picked fruit, um, really working to make the best product possible. Um, and everyone agrees it's worth it. <laughs> Tanat, uh, yes, Tanat, definitely. As a pet nat, Troon's Tanat is fantastic. Um, as a pet nat, um, and then a question, are pet nuts typically indigenous yeast or inoculated? I would say that they're typically indigenous yeasts um, in the pet nuts, simply because they're mostly falling in line with um, those producers who are looking to make wine that way. So the more organic and natural, um, minimal intervention producers. Um, of course, if you do have low yams, then um, you will need to, um, you know, either, you know, give your yeast some help or um, add an inoculant to make sure that they get through to that sparkling stage. Yes, there are plenty of CO2 injected wines. Um, I believe um, there are wines uh, that Dobbs makes. Um, uh, there's plenty of available um, canned wines that are um, CO2. Um, and it's really a growing category because it's just so easy then and reliable oops, to have um, bubbles at a lower cost of production. Um, so there's, um, I think the Laris um, sparkling wine is CO2. I believe the A to Z bubbles is CO2, is CO2 injected. So there's quite a few. Um, but yeah, they make delicious wines at just an, a more affordable price point and larger volumes are able to do as well. Great questions, everyone. Thank you. Appreciate everybody's time today and look forward to posting more of these um, as we move closer to May. Bree, thank you. With that, I think we're going to adjourn today's webinar. Thanks, everyone. Send in any questions you have and I'll hopefully see you in the next webinar. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoy Butt. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Key Vince. Until next week.
Slancha. Nice glass right now.